Good morning, everybody. It is a great, great day. This is an exciting day, at least it should be. It should be an exciting day if we recognize the event that we celebrate today, that we remember today, is without a doubt the most significant date, the most significant event in human history. 2,000 years ago, in the Middle East, an event happened that changed the world. It, it literally split history in two, and we actually recognize this event every time we write our date on our check or a document. The resurrection of Jesus is the most life-altering event that a person can hear about and put their belief in. And also, it's the most life-altering event that a person can hear about and reject. A person's response to the message of the resurrection shapes their life, determines their eternal destiny. So it's not just about living well right now, but it's actually about dying well, which I think we're all going to do someday, right? There were three middle-aged buddies who were meeting and they were discussing death. That's actually something you do once you get on the downhill side of life. You just talk about death. And they were talking about death, and one of the guys just asked his buddy, so, so on that day when you're laying in a casket and everybody's gathered, what do you want them to say? One guy said, I'd like them to say about me that he was a great humanitarian, that he cared about his community, volunteered, he helped a lot of people. One of the other buddies said, I want them to say he was, he was a great husband, a great father, and he left a legacy for his family. And the third guy said, I want them to say, look, he's moving. <laughs> but that's not going to happen, is it? When we die someday, nobody's going to say, hey, look, he's moving because we're dead. We're dead. The resurrection of Jesus is so significant within the Christian community that I would say virtually every Christian church today, whatever they were doing before today, has set that aside. We've been in a series in the book of Romans. We set that aside so we could focus on this momentous event, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, how are churches doing that? Some will look at all the prophecies of the Old Testament and all the predictions that Jesus made that he was going to come and live and die and rise again. Some will look at the proof of that, that when he did rise from the dead, over 500 people saw him. Some will look at those first gospel recordings, and we did that at our sunrise services. Pastor Scott talked about those that were first there, the first to see the resurrected Jesus. So however they do it, Christians today are gathered today and yesterday over this weekend to talk about, to explore, to revel in this amazing truth that Jesus Christ is alive. Now today as we do that, I want us to look at a portion of Scripture that reminds us of the hope that we have in this life and in the next life that's riveted and centered in 
on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but it feels like sometimes there's a hopelessness that kind of pervades our culture right now. Do you feel that? Um, I experience that sometimes. I, I don't know if I'm the only one, but sometimes when I see what's going on, there's just this sense of weight and burden and hopelessness. And of course, our world today is not the only time there have been problems and social change and political and global unrest. But here's what's different, at least as I think about it. Right now, in, particularly in our culture, there's never been a time where the foundational truths that have always upheld a culture have been dissolved so that there's sense like, what is anybody standing on today? I came across an interesting comment by Ayn Rand, who's not a Christian. She's written a number of very significant books, and you might have read some of those, but she's since passed away, so this, this is a bit dated, but she was speaking to some, some students at Yale University, and afterwards, a Time magazine reporter asked her this question, said, Miss Rand, what's wrong with the modern world? And without hesitation, here was her response, says, never before has the world been so desperately asking for answers to crucial questions, and yet never before has the world been so frantically committed to the idea that there's no answers to those questions. It's like foundationally, they've eliminated any sort of foundational truth, and she goes on to say something quite humorous. She says, the modern attitude is this, to paraphrase the Bible, Father, forgive us, for we know not what we are doing, but please don't tell us. It's like we're doing something wrong, but we don't want to know, and we rejected any sort of foundational truth that would even guide us in that. Now, that is very dated. That was back in the 80s, so here we are now some couple decades later, and it's gotten even worse. Hopelessness, because we live in a culture that truth is rejected as impractical, as unhelpful, when up is down and right is wrong and light is dark, and here we are, male is female, truth or lies. All that being said, I'm here today to say there's hope. There is hope in the midst of a hopeless situation. And it's not based on what we can come up with. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus is like this bright light that shines and and even in all the events in history past, it says there's hope. And it's the bright light that still shines today as we live in this culture that says there's still hope. And there's this bright light. It's the resurrection that looks to the future and says there's hope. So today we're going to look at a short portion of Scripture. And if you're new with us here at our church family, we look to the Bible for guidance. Nobody needs my opinion let me tell you, nobody needs my opinion. We need to know what God says. Amen? So I'm going to put up on the screen, this is the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. And I'm going to have you in just a moment stand and read it together with me. It's not that long. 
And then we're just going to walk through it and see the hope that is there. Would you stand together with me right now, please? This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And I think you'll see as we go through here the hope that's there. Let's read it out loud together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As we walk through that, in just a moment, here's what we're going to see. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have a hope that is secure. We have a hope that helps us into the future and it meets us in the present and it's a productive hope for us here today. Let's pray. Father God, we do commit ourselves to you, praying that you would meet us, that you would encourage us, that you would remind us here that there is hope because we have a Savior that is alive today. And I want to even pray now, Lord, that your Spirit would work so that there's some here today that don't know the truth of a risen Savior, that you would so work in their hearts to bring them to that point of belief and surrender. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, one of the things we need to try to understand as we process those words is ask a question, who were they first written to? So we have to just go back just a little bit, and we'll see that these words were written to some believers of Jesus who they're called aliens you can see it there and they were scattered throughout a large area through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So these are believers in Jesus and yet they're called aliens because they've been dispersed by persecution literally over a large, large area. These are Christians that are living during the time of the reign of the Emperor Nero. Who was he? He was a vicious, hateful man who blamed Christians for his problems. There was a fire in Rome at one point, and he blamed the Christians. And that just produced a lot of persecution on Christians so that the Christians became, became the sport. They were the ones that they watched as they put them in the arena to be fed to the lions, or they were torched to light the roads around the empire. 
So you need to understand that the people first reading these words were not unlike us in the sense that there was a sense of hopelessness, no doubt, that they struggled with. So let's get into this, and we'll just walk straight through the text. The first thing we see that this hope is secure. Why is it secure? Because first of all, it, it is birthed from the very character of God. You notice that phrase there that says, His great mercy, according to His great mercy. Now, the mercy of God is just one of the many attributes that make up this beautiful God that we worship. He's just, He's holy, He's merciful, He's loving, all those sort of things. And yet here this text, it says this hope comes from the heart of a merciful God. Now, how do we see that character of his mercy? So one of the things we see here, God has been merciful in that God has made himself known to the planet, particularly in Jesus Christ. And as you look at the flow of this text, it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. In other words, God has initiated something on the planet through Jesus by his mercy, because there was a need, because we couldn't do it ourselves. Recently, one of the discipleship groups that I'm in, we explored this idea of that God is light. That's another beautiful attribute. It means that God is revealing, God reveals, and God makes himself known in the darkness. And I am thankful for that, aren't you? We live in a very dark culture. The world has a sense of spiritual darkness, but the character of God, he is light and he is merciful and he extends himself into that darkness. So this hope is secure because it's not based on something that anybody here has come up with. But it's a plan and it's a purpose that God, because he is a merciful God, he is great in mercy, extends to people. And that characteristic of mercy never changes. It's secure. It's solid. Now, you don't have to live too long to be disappointed by people because people change and people let you down, and we've all experienced that. So again, I just want you to understand as we think about the mercy of God or the grace of God, or the love of God, or the truth of God, all those attributes, all those characteristics are unchanging. Amen? So we can count on that. There's security in the very character of God as he extends himself to us. This hope is secure because it's very clearly based on the resurrection of Jesus. Look at it. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's not just his character, his mercy that extends himself, but it's the work of God through Jesus, specifically in this text, his resurrection. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, understand what that does. Jesus made lots of claims. He taught a lot of things. But when he rose from the dead, it's like he said, it's done and it's validated. Romans 1, verse 4, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ because Jesus is alive. He will always be alive, and there's security in that. So it seems like God has taken all of his work from creation all the way to what he's going to do yet in the future, and he says it's secure in the resurrection of Jesus. Not to make it trite, but I could say it this way, God has put all his eggs in one basket, and it's secure. It's the resurrected Jesus. He lived perfectly. He died on purpose, and then he rose again, and there's security in that. So because Jesus rose from the dead, that means death is defeated. All of his claims are validated. Those of us who follow him are secure in that. I like how another pastor said it. Allow me to show you his words. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Do you see what he's saying there? He said he was going to rise from the dead, so if he really didn't do it, disregard the guy. But if he really did say he was going to rise from the dead, and it really did happen, then it doesn't matter what he teaches. You're obligated to follow him. This is God Almighty. So it's the resurrection, I would say, is God's way of stamping on all of history the word secure. He will accomplish what he intends to accomplish because he has accomplished the greatest event in all of human history, rising from the dead. It's a secure hope, and as we move on, we see there's a future hope in this. It says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Here's what I struggle with sometimes in my life. Sometimes life seems really heavy and dark, and I can become very myopic, very nearsighted. All I see, all I feel, all I experience is this moment I'm in. Because this moment is all-consuming. And even as I say that, I recognize that some of you are in that moment right now. This event, this situation you're in, whether it's health or marriage or economic, it is all-consuming. And still the Apostle Peter as he writes to these people in an all-consuming crisis, says, now wait, you need to still look to the future. There's something beyond this crisis. What's beyond this crisis? He says, you're going to obtain an inheritance. Now, that, that's not a financial inheritance. Just let me tell you that. Here's how I know that, because this inheritance is imperishable and it's undefiled. And we know that anything financial, uh, well, it fades, it depreciates, it's taxed, right? So, so this is not talking about a financial inheritance, it's talking about a spiritual inheritance. 
And I hope in your mind that doesn't mean, well, it's just a spiritual inheritance. I hope you recognize that makes it even more significant because it's the spiritual that lasts. It's the spiritual that is eternal. And anything else we put our hope in fades. This future hope for those who have trusted in Jesus is an eternity, is forever in a completely satisfying, fulfilling environment in the very presence of God, recognizing the full glory of God for all eternity. And in just the opposite way, the future for those who have not trusted in this resurrected Jesus, it's an eternity that is grievous and excruciating. It's devoid of anything good that could be experienced. I find it interesting, you've probably heard of Dante and this epic poem he wrote called The Divine Comedy. There's this part in there about hell that's called the Inferno, and there's this, this inscription over the entrance of hell which reads, you probably know what it, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. That is hell. It's absolutely hopeless. Whereas the eternal destiny for those who have experienced the resurrected Jesus, it's eternal hope. Things just get better and better and better. If you can ever imagine something like that for all eternity. Now there are many places in scripture that, that attempt to describe this eternal state of bliss. And they all fail. They absolutely all fail. Now, I'm not saying that somehow God's word is failed, but what, what scripture writers try to do is take something that's unimaginable and put it into human words. And that's impossible to do. And so we come up with other phrases like this. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2. It says, No eye has seen, and no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's like you can't even imagine it. And then he goes on to write to the church at Rome, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, the biblical writers end up saying, we can't even imagine it. We can't even compare anything in this life, no matter how difficult it is, to the amazing glory for those who experience the resurrection of Jesus in this life. Then we have this weighty statement the Apostle Paul writes again to the church in Corinth. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for a momentary light affliction. Let me just stop there. What you're experiencing right now, as difficult as it is, is what? Momentary and light. How can I say that? Because you're saying to me, you don't, you don't know what I'm experiencing. I say that because he goes on to say, it is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. But here's the problem. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are what? 
eternal. And what do our lives become consumed with? It's all the things we see, all the temporary things, all the things that weigh us down. And yet in the midst of that, the Apostle Peter, going back to our text, says, now wait, there's something beyond. There is a future hope that you cannot lose sight of. I don't know if I've told you the story before about Florence Chadwick. It was in 1952 that this young woman stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean at Catalina Island. She was going to swim 26 miles to the mainland of California. Now, she'd already, she'd already swam the English Channel, so it's not like she was new at this. But this was a little bit different because as she stepped into the waters to swim, the fog started to settle on the water. And she swam and she swam and she swam for 15 hours. Can you imagine that, first of all? She's swimming in cold, dark water for 15 hours. She begged to be taken out of the water along the way, and her mother who was in a boat alongside, told her that she was very close if she would just keep swimming. And she swam just a little bit more, but finally she just stopped and said, I can't go any longer. So they took her out of the water, put her in the boat, and it was then that she discovered that she was less than a half a mile away from the shore. Why did she quit? You know, it's interesting, they interviewed her afterwards. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think there's times in our lives where all we see is the fog. Have you been there? It's just the fog of disappointment. It's the fog of pain, whether it's physical or emotional or relational. It's the fog of dark, dark confusion. Yeah, we live in fog. It's interesting that she did swim the 26 miles, and interesting enough, it was foggy on that day also, but here's what she said at the end, I kept the coastline in my mind. And I just think that's a challenge to us as we live in the fog of this culture. We need to keep the coastline the end, the eternal in our minds. And, and Jesus is there on that coastline. And that coastline is, is the end of the struggle. And, and this plays out in this text. It says this is reserved. I love that idea. It's reserved, the coastline and, and Jesus and all that he's prepared for me because I put my trust in this Jesus. He's saying, it's reserved there for you. So keep swimming. You have a secure hope. You have a future hope. But it's interesting, the apostle Peter, he recognizes the situation these guys are in. He says, but it's also a present hope. Look what he says. It says you're protected in verse 5 there, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, how long? For a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. 
Yes, we have a future hope. And again, even some of you are saying, I don't, I don't need pie in the sky in the future. I need help right now. I recognize that. And these people needed help right now, so he reminds them. He says, I know you're distressed by various trials. That word distress could, could uh, simply be translated, you've been made sad by all these trials. In other words, you're weighed down and it's foggy, and I recognize that. I recognize that is your present. And I think one of the things this text here challenges us with is it makes us check our expectations. Did we think somehow that this life was going to be easy as we travel to that coastline? Let me ask, did Jesus ever promise that this road would be easy as we travel to the coastline? The answer is no. He actually said just the opposite, didn't he? He said, in this life you will have difficulty. It's interesting, a little bit later in this same letter, look what the Apostle Peter reminds these believers of. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for the testing, or for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. See, our hope in the present is not that life will be problem-free, or grief-free, or trouble-free. Our hope in the present is not that our marriage is always going to be great or that our children are always going to turn out good or that somehow our health is going to be great right up to the end. None of those are promises. Our hope is not built on those false promises. The hope is built on the presence of Jesus in all of those situations. So then you have to ask, in this text, what in the world does it mean then when he says you're protected by the power of God through faith? What does that mean? If we have all the same problems as everybody else, how are we being protected? If we have all the same troubles and all the same health issues and all the same financial problems, how are we being protected? See, this idea of being protected, listen now, it's not about being protected from troubles. It's about being protected in the trouble. It's not about somehow being isolated from problems in this life. It's, I would say, being insulated in the midst of the problems of life. I think of those three young men in the Old Testament. They had weird names, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were following hard after God, and they ended up where? In the fiery furnace. How did God protect them? He didn't protect them from keeping them out of that fiery furnace, but if you go back and read the story, it's beautiful. As people look into the fiery furnace, they don't see three, they see four. Jesus protected them in the fire. Look at this promise written through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43. It's specifically related to the nation of Israel, but I think certainly has application. But now this is what the Lord says. 
He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do you see the obvious? Going through the waters is not optional. Going through the rivers is not optional. Going through the fire is not optional. But in the water and in the river and in the fire... The resurrected Jesus is there with us. That's what it means to be protected by the power of God. The writer of Hebrews sums it up this way, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. So because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have a secure hope. It's a future hope but it's also a present hope in the midst of all the problems that are even yet future. And then there's this last major part of this text. talks about it's a productive hope. See, the hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus, even though tested by fire, produces praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. It produces something. The hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus, even though we don't see him, it still produces in us great rejoicing and inexpressible joy. There's something that's happening in us. The hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus results ultimately, it produces ultimately the salvation of our souls. So let me say it this way, it's the resurrection of Jesus that puts some sort of meaning and purpose in our lives. We don't just go through the motions. There's something that's produced because of this hope in the resurrection of Jesus. We can live life expectantly, even though we're going through the difficult time. We can live life joyfully, even though it's painful. We can experience the reality of Jesus, as that text says, even though we don't see him. Augustine said this, the only ultimate disaster that can befall us, I have come to realize, is to feel ourselves to be at home on earth. He says that's the disaster that befalls us, that we would be at home here on earth. He goes on to say, as long as we are aliens, we cannot forget our true homeland. In other words, while we're here in this alien period of time, there's something being produced in us and then comes out of us because of the resurrection of Jesus. So we're not here just counting the days till we get to go to heaven. We're not just here burying our heads in the sand with all the chaos going around us. Instead, we're engaging, and instead, as Scripture says, we're redeeming the time, having goals that are lofty, having goals that are eternal, having goals that are risky, because Jesus is alive. I came across an interesting life goals for some children. Let me show you these. This is from Edwin. 
2013 goals. Now he's six. We know that at the bottom. He says, I am six. When I'm 10, I want to learn to fly. When I'm 20, I want to play the accordion. When I'm 30, I want to play professional soccer. And when I'm 40, I get an iPhone. (laughs) That's an interesting way to look at life goals. Here's one from Louisa. My name is Louisa. I'm three years old. When I grow up, I will have mint in my water. I'll grow bigger and bigger and bigger and grow a beard. (laughs) The last one. I like this one. When I'm 100, I will play Uno with my grandchildren. I will wear a sweater all of the time. I will take naps every day and I will take my wife to Pizza Hut for dinner. (laughs) Here's why I like that goal list. I've met those. (laughs) I've done that. I'll put my sweater on after the service. We laugh at how children think about life and the future, how they think about what's really important, but what do you think is really important? How do you think about life and what goals you should have? Has the resurrection of Jesus given you a different view of life? Do you live life differently? Maybe different goals because of the resurrection of Jesus? Does your life show that you love him even though you can't see him? Does your life produce this great rejoicing or are we just stumbling through till we somehow get to the finish line? One of my favorite portions of scripture is Philippians 3 because in Philippians 3 the Apostle Paul kind of states here's some of my goals and one of them is just I just just took a little bit out of this big list he says I want to know him and the what? Power of his resurrection. That's a goal. It says, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And then he quickly follows it and the fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, I recognize that I'm going to endure these sufferings and I actually want to do that, but I want to do that in the power of the resurrection. So are you different because of the resurrection of Jesus? Or is the resurrection of Jesus yet just kind of this biblical footnote or a historical time stamp? Is the resurrection of Jesus a daily reality to you or just a reminder that this is when you should attend church? Is the resurrection of Jesus causing you to look at life and live life at a higher level? See, this passage, as we look at it as a whole, it reminds us that nobody can take a neutral position regarding the resurrection of Jesus. We must either accept the resurrection of Jesus as fact, and then our lives will reflect that accordingly. Or we must reject the resurrection of Jesus, and our lives will bear the consequence of that. But to remain indifferent 
To remain undecided, understand what that means, it's to reject it. Let me put this up on the screen. I have no idea who this guy is other than he's an old German theologian. He said this well, look at this. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. I think we could all say that. But second, if you believe it, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. If you really believe the resurrection of Jesus happened, something's going to change in your life. So has the resurrection of Jesus changed your life? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope. It is secure. It is present. It is future. And it does produce something. Our lives are different. So I'm going to just remind you what you probably already know and have probably already experienced. Hope is found in no particular philosophy. Hope is not found in a political point of view. Hope is not found in a particular economic system. Hope is not found in any relationship. Hope is not found in any sort of legislation. Hope is not found in any sort of global unity that we could imagine. Hope is found in a person. In the person of Jesus who was dead and buried and rose again from the dead. Hope will be elusive to you. Hope will be fragile in your life unless you come to that place of recognizing Jesus, what he did in his life by living perfectly, what he did in his death by, being, by dying on purpose. Understand, what he was doing at that point was being my substitute, being your substitute. He took the punishment that we deserve on him. He was buried. He was really, really dead. But then he says, I'm alive again. And he rose from the dead. Amen? He is risen, and you say, He is risen He is risen, he is risen Now, if you can't verbalize that, I'm just praying that you would come to the point that you will experience the resurrected Jesus all that he's accomplished in a very, very personal way. There's not a magic prayer that you say. There's not any sort of work that you do. It's simply responding in your heart to the Lord and calling out to him and said, Lord, I need you. I need what you've done for me. I recognize that I'm hopeless without you. Ask him to save you, to forgive you, to be the center of your life. May the Spirit of God work in each of us today so that the power of resurrection is personal and it's practical in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, here we are again as we've spent time looking at your word, and we know that your word is true, and so what has been spoken and what we've read is true. And I just pray that right now the Holy Spirit would come and, and meet every individual here. Father, can I ask that, that the Spirit would come 
and take each person wherever they're at and show them the reality of the resurrected Jesus. Father, for some believers here today that are just in the fog of life and they're discouraged and they're tired, would you just stir in them this wonderful hope that Jesus is alive and he's working and in the midst of that fog, he's there. Would you remind them of that today? Lift them up. Lift up their hearts, please. And Father, I'm praying for some here today, no doubt that... um, Lord, they've come here, it's Easter, and they've come to church, and I just pray that right now you would just convict them of their sin, cause them to call out to you, to be forgiven. Please work today, Father, even as we sing these songs about this powerful truth of the resurrection.